Well, thank you very much, worship team, for starting out our morning in a great way, and it's great to see everybody here this morning. Um, if you notice, the professionals are out of the room this morning, <laughs> so you just never know what might happen from here on out. So um, it's my privilege this morning. I'm Ryan James, one of the elders here at New Life, to continue our series in Exodus. And we'll be focusing on Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31. And uh, uh, one, of the, one of the ways that we're going to walk through this this morning is we're going to read through the passages, almost like viewing um, viewing the Bible as, as a play with, with many acts and with Exodus being an act. And today we're going to go through four uh, distinct scenes. And so that's, that's kind of how we're going to play this today. But um, first of all, I, I just want to ask you, because I feel like a lot of times in my life, I've got a lot of things that I feel insecure about, inadequate to do, you know, whether it's it's aspect of my job, whether it's it's dealing with uh, with things going on in our family or extended family, whether it's uh, trying to help Steph build a, a new type of business, whether it's doing ministry activities where we're engaging and doing events, all these things, a fair amount of my time or or preaching, I feel like a fair amount of time my time is spent faking it till I make it a little bit. Does anybody else feel that way? And, and any examples pop into your mind that, that just, just throw out there? What, what types of things make you feel that way, inadequate, where you're like, I'm just going to go do it and we'll see what happens? Well, I'll tell you what, when I started practicing medicine, everybody referred to me as Doogie Hauser. I felt like I was. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Hampton was referred to as Doogie Hauser. There you go. <laughs> the teenage doctor. Anyone else? None? Responsibility for a half a billion dollars in inventory. Yeah, yeah, it can go wrong. Anyone else? Seen as the leader of 2,600 people. Yeah. Worldwide cultures, cultures, relationships, personalities, 2,600 people. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that are happening around us and that we have responsibilities for. How do we do it? And so, you know, today we're, we're going to get a, a firsthand view of how God equipped Moses, you know, Moses, as we've heard the last few weeks, he felt that way. No question. He felt that way. It's why he was looking for somebody else to go do his thing. And so we're looking to see today and, and maybe gain some insight. And so as we walk through these, these scenes, um, we're going to see how Yahweh, and oh, by the way, we're going to use the word Yahweh today. A few weeks ago, Paul went through just a really nice explanation of how the name Yahweh was revealed to Moses um, there at the burning bush in that when Moses said, when the people ask, who sent me, what do I say? And God said, tell them that I am sent you. 
I am. It's his name. And, and that, that the, the best that we can say that is, is Yahweh. And, and Paul went through that, so I won't repeat it right now. But today, in, in our culture, I feel like the word God can get, as bad as it sounds, genericized a little bit. We can, we can say God or we can use it um, really lightly. And it doesn't really offend anyone until, until you start using the word Jesus or Jesus Christ or my Savior. Um, or I hope today Yahweh carries that weight a little bit more where we are recognizing that it is the great I am that we were referring to. No possible other substitute. And so we're going to use that name today as we hear how Yahweh equips Moses um, for his task. So the other thing we're going to do today is I've asked for a little assistance. And uh, so throughout the course of these scenes, we're going to read the passages separately. And um, I've asked uh, Gary um, Smelzer to help me out. And when I prompt him, he's going to, from right where he's sitting, he's going to, going to read. And so in a moment, you'll be hearing from Gary. But first of all, we pick up the story today following Moses' interaction with Yahweh at the burning bush. And this is happening at what Scripture refers to as the mountain of God. So, um, you know, Moses has given uh, Yahweh all his um, excuses or desire not to do this task anyway. And ultimately, in, at the end of, well, actually it was in the early part of chapter 4, Scripture says that Yahweh's anger burned against Moses. So this was... This was not welcomed. This resistance that Moses was showing was not welcomed by Yahweh at all. But he resolved Moses' objections by involving Aaron, his brother, um, who we actually don't know a lot about up until this point. He's sort of just kind of living in the background. But he came up as a, uh, as a candidate um, to assist in this situation. And we'll find out later that, in fact, he did. So right after this interaction at the burning bush, these four scenes that we're going to talk through today ensue. So with that, Gary, if you can start off by reading verse 18 through 20, I'd appreciate it. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. I, I find this narrative really interesting because... You know, we just have heard Moses being commissioned by Yahweh with, with the miraculous signs, the burning bush, the staff turning back and forth between the snake and the staff. You've got the leprous hand being healed and, and unhealed in a way. The water from the Nile being turned into blood. Um, so with all of this happening, you might have thought that Moses just take off for Egypt. I mean, he had been commissioned by God. And but he didn't. Um, his, his first move was to go back to Jethro and ask him permission to return to Egypt to simply see if his brothers were still alive. Don't you think that 
maybe Moses would have led with, so I was watching your sheep over in Horeb when Yahweh showed himself to me in a burning bush and he wants me to go rescue his people from Egypt. So I really need to go. <laughs> Don't you think it maybe would have sounded something a little bit more like that? But it's not how he, it's not how he played it at all. He, it seems as though he humbly went and asked uh, permission, really. And so I guess all, the only way we can take this is that, you know, Moses, it's an indication of Moses' deep respect uh, for for Jethro and his generosity to him over the years. At this point, he had obviously had given his daughter to him in marriage. And as part of that relationship, grandchildren had come forth and, and they had shared life then. They were, they were apparently farming together or, you know, running the sheep anyway. That's what Moses was doing at the time when, when Yahweh interacted and entered into the scene of, of Moses' life again. And he came to him, and Jethro's response was just, go in peace. Also, Jethro, extremely faithful in this, and he said, there was no real questions. You know, will you be taking my daughter and grandsons with, with you? Will it be safe? When you'll return? How will I take care of the sheep? How will you pay your way? None of that. Jethro just said, go in peace. So part of me also wonders, was Moses looking for some pushback? You know, just think about just the prior interaction Maybe with the soft sell that he gave, he was hoping for father-in-law to say, what are you talking about? No, we got work to do here. You know, whether they're alive or dead, does it matter to you at this point in your life? We're, we're comfortable here. We've got family. It'd be dangerous to go there. But, um, you know, by all accounts, Jethro was a Yahweh-fearing priest and likely had a heart that was aligned with Yahweh. And therefore, his, his leading at the time was to just say, go in peace. And so, with receiving Jethro's blessing, um, there was an additional engagement that Yahweh made with Moses. And he, he seemingly, without request, said to him, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Now, we know Moses didn't want to go. Maybe this is showing a little bit more why. He was, he was fearful for his life because now Yahweh was affirming perhaps his fears that if these guys were still alive, it may truly have been um, a really risky situation. But Yahweh reassures him, um, the coast is clear. You don't, you don't need to go in, in fear. You can go and be confident that I am leading you and have provided you safe passage and so, to Moses' credit, he obeyed. So, that, that kind of brings to conclusion scene one. And so, what do, we, what do we take as far as us applying what Yahweh is equipping Moses with, and we're using as an example uh, Moses' life, we can take from that, we need to be humble and obedient in our service. God uses people in the middle of normal life to accomplish remarkable things. You don't have to look any further than Moses right here. And Moses had this literally miraculous, multiple miraculous signs and wonders revealed to him by God, but he didn't use it to go over the head of the person in authority of him right now, right at that point, his father-in-law. 
he, the person who had been so kind to him and generous to him. Otherwise, Moses instead was just honoring. And he went to him, giving him opportunity, really, to weigh in, provide blessing or not. And so in, in a way, you can view that as you know, looking to provide him counsel. And so, you know, if we receive a calling, a guidance, a direction from God, what does that look like for us? You know, how could we take Moses' example? You know, I, I think of um, several instances over the years when people in our church family have made um, big decisions, whether it was job changes or a relocation or um, you know, leaving the church to go to another church or um, being in a relationship, marriages or, or um, other relationships, and they were going to make big decisions. And they didn't engage anyone, whether it was a life group leader or their elders or even their friends. And all of a sudden, you know, either they were gone or the change had been made. And then you watch this play out over the course of sometimes months and years or even decades. And sometimes it works out great. And other times you just, you know, kind of gasp and say, what happened? Everybody seen those Facebook posts of those you know, not necessarily the examples I'm thinking of, but examples in your own life. Like you, you see the impact and you think to yourself, man, what if they would have talked to such and such and, and processed this out? What would, what would our lives look like today? What would their lives look like? And so here we've got this great example of Moses at least running it past Jethro. And in this case, Jethro said, go. But if Moses had been way off, like we see so many other times in the Old Testament when people didn't seek God for guidance, things went all wrong. And Jethro could have pointed that out. So anyway, let's be humble and obedient in our service and in our actions. Scene two. Instruction from God on what to expect. Uh, Gary, go ahead and read verses 21 through 23. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refers to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Wow, wow, wow. A lot happening there. So this is actually a part of the same conversation. So they, they hadn't really gone anywhere yet, but the, 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 the camera just panned, if you will, to a different type of conversation where once Jethro gave the blessing. Now, now Yahweh was um, was further coaching him into what um, exactly what to say. And so, you know, at this time, he he was able to um, uh, he was able to receive this message, and and Yahweh was telling him to make sure he uses every miracle that he's put in power to to do, and then ultimately at Later on in the story, Moses would implement the plagues with Yahweh's power and direction. But there was one big additional piece of information that Yahweh inserted in here. And while, you know, really, 
for this part of the, the scene of this act that we're working in, um, it doesn't have huge implications right now, but it does have huge implications as we step into these additional chapters. And that's where Yahweh goes on to say that he should not sp- suspect any of these signs to compel Pharaoh's release of, of the nation of Israel because Yahweh is going to harden the heart of Pharaoh specifically so he will not release the Israelites. So what, what does that even mean? So in general, this is a portion of Scripture. It's been highly, highly discussed for generations because of the implication that Yahweh has caused Pharaoh's rejection of Moses' request. And therefore, the rejection of Yahweh himself to release the people of Israel. So the crux of the matter here is that we have need to ask ourselves, who's hardening whose heart? Does the hardening of the heart directly prevent obedience to Yahweh? And is this something that is within the realm of Yahweh's nature and character to do? So this is a topic that we're going to be revisiting because over the course of the next, I don't know, 10 chapters, um, it, 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 uh, it's when it actually plays out. But right now, Yahweh is telling Moses, this is how it's going to play out. So don't be surprised. So we're going to take a, a little bit of a, of a detour here just to walk through this idea of hardening so that, um, A, you can begin to wrestle with it because it's not going away um, over the course of the next 10 chapters. And, and it, we'll be talking about it in life groups and you can look, at, look it up and you can read copious amounts of, of dissertations and of, of uh, research articles and all this. It's, it's fascinating because it comes down to the question of God's sovereignty. Specifically, we see here in Exodus that there are at least nine occasions where Scripture speaks to Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. Or slightly more generically, Pharaoh's heart being hardened or was hardened. All right, now stick with me here. Correspondingly, there are at least nine occasions where Scripture speaks to Yahweh hardening Pharaoh's heart. So we got Pharaoh hardening his heart. We got Yahweh hardening Pharaoh's heart. (laughs) So Pharaoh alone was the agent of hardening in the first five plagues. So we're we're jumping forward here. We're not going to go there in detail, but hopefully we know enough of the story that the plagues are coming. And Pharaoh does the hardening himself as he does not release the people. On the sixth plague, Yahweh confirmed this willful hardening as he told Moses he would do. You know, he, he affirmed that hardening. He hardened Pharaoh's heart as well, or it was a part of it. So um, the, the English Standard Version Study Bibles notes, uh, put it this way, though one might conclude that if God hardens someone's heart, the latter is not answerable for his action. This is not the biblical view. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is referred to throughout chapters 4 through 14 with the implication that Pharaoh is answerable for his own actions. However, as we just read, the Lord states here that it is his sovereign hand that ultimately governs the events. Uh, Riken and Hughes in their book, Exodus, Save for God's Glory, says this, 
this tension is not a puzzle that can be completely solved on this side of heaven, and definitely not this morning, uh, but a mystery to stand in adoration of. In these instances, I reflect on my own sinful tendencies. And one thing I know for sure is that when I sin, I may at times be rejecting a conviction that I feel, and sometimes I just sin without hesitation. (laughs) Um, But I know that 100% is that when I sin, it's because I want to do that thing. Now, I may hate that I want to. I may desperately not want to want to, but I do want to, otherwise I wouldn't do it. Um, And the weight of that desire outweighs my ability to resist in that moment. You know, something about it makes me feel good physically or emotionally. It avoids pain or difficulty. It puts me in front of someone else on a pecking order. Um, All these things that, that... Give me that temptation that I can't overcome. And so we see, this, see from Pharaoh's life, he mostly desired to cause damage to Israel and to mistreat and take advantage of the people without any inherent desire to start treating the Hebrews right. You know, I, I own my sin 100%, and Pharaoh owned his sin 100% as well. Paul speaks to this in Romans chapter 9. Verses 17 and 18. And, and I encourage you to go read this whole section of Scripture because it speaks to, um, speaks to the, uh, the, whole, the issue of a, of a whole that um, we'll continue to walk through over the course of the next few weeks. Romans chapter 9, 17 and 18 says this. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, Yahweh, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. We are all sinners by nature, and therefore under the condemnation of God. He wasn't obligated to save anyone. And he would have been perfectly just to let us all go to hell. The problem here is, is that because some people are saved, we feel that God is being arbitrary, unfair, or unloving. So the reality here in this scene of this act is that Pharaoh already had a heart of stone. And each subsequent rejection of God's word when Moses was sent to him, hardened his heart, heart further. And but the take-home message here is that God's, God's word, his message to us, it either softens our heart or hardens our heart. And it's a barometer of our understanding and of our standing before him, of where we stand with him. For Pharaoh, it was a word from Yahweh through Moses, for us, it is reading and hearing Scripture that teaches us how to live. And so a, a, a legitimate question for us to ask ourselves is, how do I respond to God's Word? Do I embrace difficult truths? 
or do I go my own way? Do we ignore and justify or do we obey? So as I mentioned before, this topic of hardening and and the, um, the role and the impact of God's sovereignty in, in Moses and Pharaoh's scene and in our salvation will continue to be discussed over the coming weeks. It's enough for today. I'm going to leave it for you to wrestle with as we, as we uh, um, turn the page um, and talk more about it in coming weeks. So verse 22 and 23, which, uh, which we just read a minute ago, I'm going to read it one more time here says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, this is Yahweh talking to Moses, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Wow. Here, Yahweh is relaying this message through Israel and to, and to summarize here, basically saying, Israel is my firstborn son, and I have not forgotten them over 400 years. This time period for you and for the people there is just part of my plan. This is Yahweh. Yahweh's um, speaking here. I live and I work and act outside of time. And I am in this moment reinserting myself into life on earth in a more palpable way than that you all have perceived for the last 400 years. But don't be mistaken. My will, my mission, my purpose have been in progress. I love the children of Israel, this people, as my firstborn son. And through Moses, I'm requesting that you release them into a different plan I have for them. I'm so serious about that, that if you don't release them, I'll kill your firstborn son. It's a remarkable message, a remarkable task that Moses handed. It's no wonder that God needed to tell him what to say, because I don't think think anyone would have that courage to go before Pharaoh and say, I'm going to take the life of your son. So how do we we receive this message from this particular scene, scene two? We need to allow God's work to direct us. The all-powerful, sovereign, and trustworthy Yahweh provides direction. And then we need to allow it to be a barometer of where we stand with him. How do we respond to difficult truth? Ignore and justify or obey? I know one thing that is a difficult um, thing to deal with right now, and, and it's showing up in my office, at, at my workplace, is the issue of sexual relationships outside of the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Um, recently, I'm working, mo- working more closely with a couple of people that have same-sex relationships. And I'm growing to really like them, and they're becoming friends. And so... When you know, I was just talking to Steph about this in the last few days, that it changes the type of temptations I have in thinking about the possibility of 
justifying, ignoring. When there's these people I like, I love, I enjoy, and I'm not sure I want to be put in the place of, of judging the actions that they're participating in. It makes me think about things in a different way. And it, I don't have a solution right now. I'm, I'm wrestling with it because I'm these relationships in the process of building. And, and honestly, it goes, it's the same for uh, men and women who, who have sex outside the context of marriage. And, and people we interact with that um, are, are participating in that. It's, it's, not, it's not different. Um, I think we're, we're tempted, again, to, into ignoring and justifying. They're friends. They're family. And it's like how we're going to respond to God's word. How are we going to lovingly engage them? Um, man, it's not... It's not easy. I mean, and, and if, if, if it's us participating, that's tough too, right? It's tough. To, those, those are powerful, powerful emotions and activities. And uh, when, when uh, yeah, it's just hard. Matthew 7, uh, 13 and 14 says this, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Some of God's instructions for us are not easy to follow. And that goes when it's us or when it's people we love and truth that needs to be shared. So, Let's pray for each other as we walk down that path uh, with people we care about. That's the close of scene two. Scene three, we've got conflict going on the way. So we pick up the story here where Moses and his family are on the journey to Egypt where Moses got his tremendous calling. Now, if you think about what's happened so far, you've got the burning bush, you've got all the wonders and signs, you've got uh, Moses and Jethro, gives him the blessing to go. You've got um, God then even giving him further encouragement. The people he's scared of are dead. Um, go ahead and take off. If you're Moses, I would think you're feeling pretty good about things right now, and you're on the way to Egypt. And with that, Gary, can you read verses 24 through 26? At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. What is going on here? I... and. When I started studying for this a few weeks ago, and I read through it the first time, I, I swear I have never paused on that two verses in my life before. It set me up in my chair going, what is going on? Really a remarkable moment there after Yahweh is, 
is, is requesting and, and building this whole picture of Moses' rescue of the people. And he's on the way. They're, maybe they're a, a, night, a day walk away and the, the night leading into the, you know, the business of the matter. And he came to kill him. I, who else would have done it? I don't know. I mean, if, if but apparently Yahweh didn't really care. It's like, here to take, I've got, you know, you're one person. I got a billion others. We'll figure it out. So really remarkable here. But the thing we got to remember here is that this time in history, the only law that Yahweh had given to Abraham, part of the covenant was circumcision. And for whatever reason, Moses and his wife had not circumcised one of their sons yet. So this is a sin of omission, not doing something that they ought to have done, which clearly um, Yahweh was making it clear that this was as serious as having done something that was clearly against Yahweh's law. So side note, we shouldn't forget about that in our own lives. Not doing something that we ought to have done is just as sinful as the opposite. So it's not completely clear from, from Scripture why they hadn't done so. Um, scholars, you know, suggest multiple things. It could be anything from the time since the covenant. Uh, Moses having been raised in Pharaoh's family. Maybe he wasn't living um, as, as devout uh, of life. It is possibly also that Zipporah, who would have been, she was a Midianite in the line of Abraham, but not Jacob. So maybe she, she and her family weren't as devout, although uh, it, it's just, it's kind of hard to say. It may also have been that they didn't like doing the procedure with kid number one. Uh, it couldn't have been pleasant. It couldn't, couldn't be pleasant to do that to your own kid. Um, not personally had the opportunity given... Um, given two girls, but nonetheless, it, um, it, it couldn't have been pleasant. And I don't think you know, she, she may not have been on board. They may, both of them may not have been on board, but as this next couple of verses plays out, it seems like she potentially was less on board and was a little bit um, not happy about Moses' situation causing her to have to do that. No matter what the reason, it does seem clear from Scripture that this was the reason for Yahweh's anger, the fact that they hadn't done it yet. And that's just because immediately she took action. She knew the minute that, that Yahweh came to take her husband's life, what needed to be done. They were clearly in sin, and she clearly knew what it was because she took action and performed the circumcision. And it, may, it may have been that Moses was incapacitated. Yeah, maybe, maybe he was using sickness, or maybe there was a, some sort of angel of God there that was holding him at knife point, at, at sword point or something. We don't really know what was happening there, but she took it into her own hands. Otherwise, you'd think maybe Moses would have done it if he would have been able. Uh, it's kind of speculation, but you go on to see after Zipporah accomplished this act, she still doesn't seem happy um, given that she kept referring to Moses as a bridegroom of blood. And you know, one commentary described her as throwing the foreskin at Moses and exclaiming, you bloody husband. This, this attitude that sort of seems like that it, it 
could have been because more of because of Zipporah's lack of commitment to the covenant. Regardless, Yahweh wanted Moses' personal life to be holy before he could go take on this leadership role. And he was dead serious about it. He came to take his life. But praise God that Zipporah rectified it. For whatever her attitude was, she did in that moment what needed to be done. And uh, it sure seems like the story would have been cleaner had they been completely united underneath the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision and had taken care of it on day eight of this kid. But they hadn't. But in spite of that, God's mercy prevailed when she took care of it on the way. So what do we take away from this scene number three? God uses sinners and chronic sinners for extremely important tasks. He clearly wanted Moses to do this thing that has opened up the door for the salvation of the world as we fast forward to today and we have the privilege of looking backwards. But he wouldn't stand for sin. And that was the time that he decided that it needed to be taken care of or somebody else would take care of his business. It'd be okay. And so we need to recognize that we can be confident that God can use us, but if we're in sin, we need to take care of it. And especially if we're in leadership roles, and for most of us, whether it's our family or whether it's a church, um, most of us have some sort of leadership role. And so we need to get our lives in line with how Yahweh how Christ wants us to live. And the reality is, until we've surrendered our life to Christ, we also are on the road with Moses, like he was that day with Yahweh coming to take his life. Until we've surrendered our lives to Christ, he will take our life because of the sin that's unforgiven. As a bonus point, be aligned with your wife. Be aligned with your husband. If you're not married, don't marry someone who doesn't have common surrender beliefs to you in Christ. This may have been the whole source of the problem. We don't know. Uh, Moses may have been distracted by the desires of his wife, or they could have been just distracted together because of the unpleasantness of the situation. But either way, they left the things of Yahweh in second place. And praise God for his mercy that it was restored as they rectified the situation. Scene number four, Gary, 27 through 31. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. 
And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So meanwhile, somewhere else in the region, Yahweh was having a conversation with Aaron. Again, we don't know much about Aaron's response or even what he was doing at the time, except that he obeyed, and he obeyed quickly. He arrived there. He received report from Moses, who Moses showed him all the signs that Yahweh had told him and revealed him and given the power for, and told him all the things that Yahweh had said that he needed to say to the people and, and, and also to Aaron. So what just out of curiosity, I, was, I just think that at that point in time, do you think that Moses was sort of thinking, man, I probably could have done this? You know, thinking back to chapter 3 when he's going, I couldn't say this to the people. I don't speak well. I don't do all this. Now that they've, they've walked the path to Egypt, they've, you know, Yahweh came to take his life, and now Aaron showed up and he's, Got to tell him what to say. I got, I got to believe that somewhere in Moses' heart in that moment, he's like, I, now I probably could have done this. Um, that was just a side note. Um, so um, I think I would feel that way. Uh, so anyway, Aaron, though, um, the, the faithful servant, the quick obeyer, he did exactly what was called on him to do. He took this information. They gathered the elders. They gathered the people. Moses and Aaron together then relayed the signs and the wonders to the people. And they believed. As, as verse 29 says, and, 20, and 30 says, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And in a very similar way in this situation, Yahweh softened the heart of the people to believe. Their life had been horrible for 400 years. <laughs> and Yahweh gave them the privilege of the wonders, the signs, and Moses and Aaron, but they still could have had a bad attitude. But God's word softened their heart, and they believed and worship. And so as scene four closes, what do we receive from this message as an example from this group of people? Obey like Aaron and worship like the people and the nation of Israel. Obey quick and sacrificial. You know, Aaron didn't really know what was going on except Yahweh told him to go and meet Moses. And then he played an incredible role. And the second thing is, is that we need to recognize that Yahweh, God, is faithful over the long view. 400 years. It's, it's hard to even imagine the difference of what was happening 400 years ago right now in the, you know, in the, in the 1600s, what life was like then versus now. That's the length of time that the people had been in slavery. But yet God was faithful to the word that he had shared.
So in review of the four scenes, remember them. The scene one, with Jethro's interaction, be humble and obedient in our service. Hear from God and confirm through wise counsel. Scene two, Yahweh's coaching of Moses. Allow God's word to direct you. He's loving. He's all-powerful and good. Trust him. Use scripture. God's word is the barometer for your spiritual walk. Will you and we and I ignore and justify or obey? Scene three, Yahweh came from Moses' life. On one hand, God uses sinful people for great things. I'm, I'm excited about that because I'm a sinful person. On the other hand, Yahweh views sin very seriously. And everyone needs to recognize that we stand condemned to death until we surrender our lives to Christ. And as a bonus there, you need to be aligned with our spouse, spiritually aligned with your spouse. Lastly, obey like Aaron, quick and sacrificial. We do these things as a church. We will have incredible impact, like Moses had incredible impact, despite all of his hesitations and weaknesses. You know, in that 400 years, Yahweh was largely silent until the deliverer Moses was put into action to save the people, save his people, save the children of Jacob, the children of Israel, out of slavery. Now, there was another 400 years of silence, a largely silence of Yahweh that occurred later on after the recorded Old Testament. And after that time, Yahweh made himself known to who? Mary and Elizabeth and Joseph prior to the arrival of the true and better deliverer, Jesus, who came to not just save people out of the bondage of slavery, but to provide the permanent solution for this bondage that we all are in of sin. So today, Jesus is ready and able to rescue. And any one of us who calls on his name and surrenders our lives and priorities to him from the bondage of slavery to sin will give us that eternal life with him as we surrender that, our lives to him. So this ultimately is the end game of the Exodus story. It's Jesus coming to save. It's his blood shed for our sins. And through that, a Savior, those of us who receive him. So with that, I want you to be able to meet him today. If you're interested in that, talk to myself or someone else here. Is that is the true crux of this story. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we're just grateful for today. We're grateful for the story of redemption that weaves its way throughout history, throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the story of Moses and Pharaoh, and throughout the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, and throughout our lives that we are lost in need of a Savior, as we thank you for the great promises you give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.